and welcome to Always Take Notes. A message from our sponsor, Writing Magazine. If you've always wanted to write, but never known how to start, or if you've already got a book under your belt, Writing Magazine is just what you need to practice, develop and publish your written work. Filled with author profiles, tips from agents and advice from publishers, Writing Magazine is a great way to get you started, or back in the saddle, with writing of any genre. Discover how to beat writer's block, develop a character, write for children or choose a genre, it's all there in every issue. Writing Magazine have provided an exclusive discount for listeners of Always Take Notes. Download their digital magazine and try their introductory subscription offer at three issues for just £4.99, worth £18. You can claim this offer online and the link is in the show notes. As a subscriber, you also benefit from discounted entry into their monthly writing competitions, which is a great way to practice your skills and potentially win cash prizes and publication in their magazine. Offer ends 31st of January 2022. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Rachel and myself spoke with journalist and author Gary Young. We spoke to Gary about his career at The Guardian, his acclaimed non-fiction books, and his decision to enter academia. It's a great episode, and we hope you enjoy it. Gary, it's great to have you on Always Take Notes. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I wanted to start out by asking about your entry to journalism in, in the early 90s, and particularly getting this Scott Trust bursary at The Guardian. So how did you, at that stage, how did you find out about it? And what was the, the process of applying? And what, what drew you to do that? Uh, I read about it in the paper. I was a daily reader. It was my final year of university. I didn't know what I wanted to do exactly. Um, I knew I didn't want to go into the corporate world. thought I might do teaching as a foreign language or something like that. But I had done some journalism uh, for the Scotsman and I'd enjoyed it. And I got paid a little bit. And it was the first thing that I'd really done and enjoyed uh, that I'd got paid for. I was actually trained, I was training to be a translator but that training had got me into really into sort of words and and much more into words than telling uh, talking about other people's words and i was very politically involved so i saw it in the paper i noticed that it said something to the effect of kind of um specifically inviting people from ethnic minorities and other underrepresented backgrounds and that did just make me think, okay, so they will not freak out when you turn up then. Because that, that was just a common experience of a range of things, you know, uh, up until then looking for flats or whatever that somehow posting that made a difference. I think you had to write an article, a short article about someone of interest in your area uh, and then, you know, fill in the forms. And I got an interview and I was interviewed by, among others, Alan Rusbridger. And uh, the funny thing that I remember about the interview is coming down on the train. I was studying in Scotland, in Edinburgh. Coming down on the train, my image of a journalist, or certainly a student journalist, a young journalist, was someone who 
was so hungry and so for for this that kind of give me it, give me it, give me it. Like this is all I've ever wanted to do. I've wanted to be a journalist since I was five. And that just wasn't me. I mean, um, I was interested in journalism. I was kind of interested in what journalism could do. I really wanted the bursary because I had no other... My mother died when I was 19 and my dad left when I was one. So I had no other sort of parental support. Um, whatever I did next was kind of going to be on my my own. There was not like, well, I'll go home and chill for a bit. And um, so I, on the way down, I was thinking... You've got to say, if they say, what will happen if you don't get this bursary? You've got to say, I'll die, I'll die. Like, I must have it. It's my life. And I got in the room. And of course, they did say, what What will you do if you don't have the bursary? And I just completely shat the bed. Just, just um, I said, um, it was a long pause. And I just said, I'll do something else. You know, I said, I'll do something else. I'll probably teach abroad this gives a sense of the um of the time <laughs> you know i said it doesn't cost much to write something down and put a stamp on an envelope and send it somewhere which is how news or articles were delivered at the time um i'll just do something else you know because i can't do this without the money and the whole time just thinking, sharp, 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 it's the wrong answer. And it actually was the right answer, as it turned out, because the bursary scheme is to encourage people who would otherwise not be journalists. And, um, and you know, a number of very kind of um, good people have come through there. The two of the Guardian leader writing team at the moment came through the bursary scheme. Uh, Hannah Poole, who runs the Bernie Grant Arts Centre, uh, Anushka Snana, who was a lobby, head of the lobby, um, one of the heads of the lobby is now going to work with Peston. Uh, so over the years, there's been uh, Lanray Bakre, uh, kind of too invidious to mention them all, but actually um, quite a lot of good people have come through there. I read uh, somewhere as well that in that interview you said that you fancied being a columnist. Was that just a, a easy, straightforward answer or was there something that genuinely appealed to you about being a column writer? Oh, no, that's true. I mean, I was, um, I mean, first and foremost, I was a po- politically engaged. You know, I was vice president of my student union, was very active in the anti-apartheid movement, Labour. So I was... Um, uh, so, you know, I had nothing if not opinions. I was all about the opinions. And um, now I was asked, what kind of job would you like if you were on The Guardian? And I said, I'd like a job like Hugo Young. And uh, one person said, well, there's only room for one Hugo Young uh, at The Guardian. And I said, well, why wouldn't that be me? Which... Sounds a bit twatty now because I actually did end up being a columnist, but then it was the equivalent of wanting to play polo for England or, you you know, or, I mean, it was a... And so my point was, yeah, yeah, no, I get that. It's a long shot, but somebody's got to do it, haven't they? And um, and I was sufficiently aware about what class confidence could do to know that there would be people who would go in there and just say, yeah, but that's my job. Um so I wasn't trying to show off, but it sounds like that now, actually. 
Could you take us to those early years of The Guardian, so what, what you were doing in your initial years on the paper, but also explain a bit about what the institution was like at that time in the early 90s, how big it was, how its level of kind of resourcing compared to today. And then also, you know, was when did the internet, I suppose, begin as a, a kind of glimmer on the horizon? Yeah, so it reminded me of, I, uh, I got my bursary in 92, so I did some work experience in 92, 93, and then started doing shifts um, in October 93. And it struck me, my first impressions were it was like a very, very messy middle-class person's like living room or drawing room. Just like papers everywhere, total fire hazard, people kind of scruffy. Some people bought their pets in. Nancy Banksmith used to bring a farting dog in. Uh, a bit eccentric. And what became clear to me as a kind of young person trying to make my way through it is that it was quite porous. So you could go up to someone and say, oh, I think I've got an idea, you know. And so my feeling was, so long as I had a reason to go back into the office, then you could, you know, you could kind of wonder about and ply your wares. Sign of the times is that I was, I started my shifts in Guardian Europe, which um, obviously uh, uh, has long since gone, wouldn't make much sense now, but which was a kind of constellation of partner papers from around the continent. And then there was a little team of us who would translate, uh, go through the foreign papers. Uh, so, Liberation, Neue Deutsche Zeitung, Süddeutsche Zeitung, whatever, find articles that we thought would work if they were translated uh, into The Guardian and then translate them. And then every now and then we would write our own article, but mostly that's what we were doing. And um, it was very white. I mean, lily white, almost. Like, put a polar bear in there, you're not going to find it white. And, And quite posh. Not mean posh, just regular posh. Just middle class folk, upper class, middle, upper middle class folk, I guess. Um, I mean, this is all very impressionistic. And there was, it, it felt like there were a series of cantons. It felt a lot looser now than it, it, then than it is now. A series of cantons where each kind of place doing kind of their own thing, really, uh, and trying to kind of keep it together in some kind of coordinated way uh, uh, towards, towards the top. And I would say a bigger ideological variation, even at higher levels. So there were people like Victoria Britain or uh, Seamus Milne was there and was, you know, relatively seen within the organisation, although he continued to be for quite a time. Richard Gott, who later got kind of fingered for being a communist uh, uh, Soviet spy. Um, uh, Richard Norton Taylor... Regina Henry, so so there was more as well as just kind of regular liberal folks. So there was kind of quite an ideological variation, and um, I guess indicative of that sort of porousness was that um, Alan Rusbridger, who was deputy editor at the time, I came in just after G two was introduced, so it was kind of 
there was a feeling there of kind of being market leaders in terms of kind of innovation and so on. But um, Alan was reading, I think, New York Review books or something, and he could see that in South Africa, in a run-up to the election, there were jo- there were stories that white journalists couldn't get. But he kind of, by the very nature, didn't know what they were, and so he wondered if I was interested in going and staying in a township for a little while. And kind of the piece that I did as a result of that where I I got in with Mandela's bodyguards and I followed him around, had this kind of ringside seat on history. I was like 25. So it was all like, oh, look, look, there he is, there he is. Um, uh, I did a piece called The Black Knight and that's what got me my job. By that point, did you feel pretty confident reporting and assembling material and doing all of that research or did you feel sort of like you'd been thrown in the deep end in a good way? Yeah, no, I was way out of my depth. <laughs> I do not mind admitting. No, I didn't really. I mean, I knew I'd been to the city, and I knew, you know, I knew not to make stuff up. I knew not to steal other people's work, but um, the kind of craft of gathering and assembling, and um, uh, I was kind of learning on the job, and it was kind of, it felt like quite a high wire act actually. The first day, as it turned out to be the only day that I was kind of, um, I was very, I was the super junior, like scrappy do person in the office. And and they went, um, there was some day when they said, well, Gary, you just kind of, you do the news today, you know. And it was all kind of kid gloves. And anyway, I still completely fucked it up. Just kind of got, you know, just, just fucked it up um, because I didn't know what I was doing. Do you recall how so? Yeah, there was um, there were there were talks between Incarta and ANC and the election kind of board something about, about participation or not participation, and somehow I had figured out I hadn't I didn't make it up it it was on a wire somewhere that they'd reached eleventh hour compromise. Um, and and we ran with that, <laughs> and uh, they had not reached an eleventh hour compromise. And um, yeah, the story the next morning was about how it all crashed and burned, apart from in the Guardian. So um, and you know, I think I was told, oh yeah, that news agency, yeah, they're not very good, <laughs> you know. And anyway, I just didn't know. So it was um, no, it was. I would say for about the first three years like my heart was always in my mouth when a piece was coming out what have I done where's this gonna go what mistake did I make you know not confident at all to answer your question no could you tell us about then the experience of going to America for your Lawrence Stern fellowship in the mid-1990s had you spent appreciable time in, in the US before that and what, what was your encounter with, with like both American society and American journalism uh, so no, I'd been on hol- uh, um, <laughs> My first encounter with America was changing planes in Miami on my way to Barbados with a friend. Barbados, where my folks are from. Uh, we missed the connection, so we had to stay in Miami for a night. And we were too. All we knew about Miami was Miami Vice, and we were too freaked out to go downtown. So we spent the whole day in the airport, which actually was quite an education in itself, but. 
you know, pretty crazy. And then the next time I went for a week to New York and then I applied for the Lawrence Stern Fellowship and got it. Um, and that is a fellowship that allows one young British journalist to go and work during the summer at the Washington Post. It's named after an Anglophile, a late, the late Anglophile Lawrence Stern. But I'd always been, and I remember writing in my application, up until now, I've been, I've pretty much had to sink or swim. And I've managed to get to the shore, but I've taken in quite a lot of water. That's what I wrote in the application. And so I wanted, and this was a really blissful and I think really kind of key moment in my development as a as a journalist in particular and a writer in general. Because it was like, I don't know, some kind of university course or something where you could do as much or as little as you liked. And... You know, you just wrote your own ticket, really. And they were well-resourced. There were people in the office who knew Larry. And so there was a real affection for the fellowship as well as a desire for it to kind of succeed. And, um, you know, you'd find a story in Denver and they'd say, you want to take two days and see the Rockies, you know. And... um, uh, I went down to Louisiana to do a story and they, they would give me restaurant recommendations. I mean, it was a really, they really wanted you to have a good time. It gave me the time and the space to develop um, my writing as opposed to just thinking each new thing is the next new crisis for me. And there is something about uh, American journalism I would say particularly magazine journalism, but even some of its best newspaper journalism, which is really edifying, uh, I think. To some degree about rigour, but also about kind of um, trying to find that, going the extra mile to find that piece of colour, because that piece of colour will really make the thing pop. And really kind of... um, uh, There was a a lower level of metabolism there slower metabolism and so unlike in britain where they would say gary we want 700 words on this by seven and then the next morning all the other papers have done the same story you've got to do it that day it just wasn't like that there and so you would have a conversation with the editor about what you should look for and then you would make a lot of calls and then you'd go back to them before you went out to do the reporting. And then you would go out to do the reporting and you would call in and tell them how it's going and they would kind of guide you, you know, maybe you want a bit more of this or a bit more of that. And then you would come back and then you would talk through the story again and then you would write it and then it would be edited and then you would get it back. As opposed to, you know, when when I do my column... Um, at the Guardian, I think most British newspapers are like this. Quite often the editing process was, and I had very good subs and very good editors, but I would call on Wednesday, say, I'm thinking of doing this. They'd say, great. Then I'd do it. Then I'd send it. Then I would call and say, any queries? And you can go, any queries for Gary? No, you're good. You're good. Thanks. And so... To have this 
infrastructure for three or four months was actually kind of um it was paradigm shifting because it made me think about what I was doing in a much more considered and uh, reflective way. I mean, there's also lots of criticisms I could make, but like, it, it was very important to me. And while you were there, um, was that when you did the travel and the research for No Place Like Home? No, what happened was while I was there, I met and fell in love with an American. Then I had to come back. I wrote a piece there, right at the end, um, <clears throat> about being black in America, being black and British in America. They got a lot of attention. Uh, Jane Bradish Ellums from Curtis Brown wrote to me and said, would you like to write a book about this? And I thought that was the most effective way for me to get back and see my then girlfriend. And so I said yes. But then it took me like six months to actually figure out how to do a book proposal. And then and then I did. So it so it wasn't then that I did the research. I did the research about eight months later. It was while I was there that I saw enough to understand what my fascination with America is. So w- without that stay, I wouldn't have had the book. And when did you first get into column writing? I mean, that's something that was a, a kind of consistent, you know, part of your your career at the Guardian. W- when did you get into it? How did it come about? And then over the years, how did you develop your method and your process for writing columns? Well, it. it came about in 1999 in the wake of the McPherson report and um, that was no accident and that's a lot an awful lot of things happened around then uh, Zadie Smith's um, white teeth came out Yasma by Brown got her column Stephen Queen won a Turner Prize and it was this kind of in the year before Chris Ophelia won a Turner Prize and I put it down, this this kind of moment of kind of New Labour through to 9-11, where there was this kind of, this pent-up series of kind of conversations and engagements that people had wanted to have, but they had been pretty much kind of nullified or suppressed um, under a Tory government. But there were then, even though I think New Labour was awful about immigration, actually not great on race, there was there was an opening up there was a kind of there was a flowering and uh, which was down to their existence and i mean it pretty much i felt it closed down after 911 and that's when the kind of retreat against multiculturalism and all that kind of happened but that's when i got it and that's why i got it i think i mean i'd written the odd column before then I don't think it was a bizarre idea. You know, I was quite a opinionated writer. So um, I'd written a few leaders before then. Nothing huge, you know, not not the main leader usually, but I'd written a few. So I was kind of, it's, it wasn't completely absurd, but I felt, and my process changed. So uh, really due to circumstances. So I felt I was 30 and I just thought, you don't know enough to write a column, which I kind of think was true. But what you can bring to this is energy. And so I would go places. I would, I'd want to write about asylum seekers and I would 
find a local asylum seeker story somewhere and then I would go and I would report and then I would kind of embed the reporting in the column and to me that was a way of I didn't have enough knowledge or experience even now I'm 52 I could now write I mean I don't write columns anymore but I could now write something that kind of links now to the Iraq war or the first Gulf war which was 20 years ago well, when you're 30, you can't link things to when you were 10. You know, you don't, you just don't have the body of work and knowledge and the experience. So I thought what I can do is hop on a train, make some calls, go see people, and kind of that can be not my USP. It's not like I was the only person doing that, but most columns aren't written like that. So, uh, and that was my method. And it was quite... If, if, could call it that. And it was quite difficult because there isn't always a thing that relates to the thing that you want to write about. And um, it actually, you know, it makes it, it makes it much more difficult to do when you actually put people in it because then people have their own agendas and they say stuff and you've got to kind of incorporate it into an argument. Um, and I carried on doing that in the States... I had a little break when I when I left for the States. I thought I was going to stop my column, but then I actually wanted to carry it on. And then, um, and it was every two weeks, which is which makes a big difference, actually, because you can always be slightly off the pace. You're not chasing the moment. And I carried doing that in the States, and, and I was indulged. I was um, supported in doing that. So I remember when Fahrenheit 9-11 came out, I flew to Ohio to Akron, which is a swing town in a swing state, to watch it in a little town. Well, not that little, but in a town outside of New York. And, you know, they would be fine with that. Or I would fly to the book opening of a right-wing, right-wing, a kind of evangelical Christian bestseller. Uh, And I did that until I had a kid. And then it wasn't that plausible anymore just to be like, I'm off for now, you know, for uh, for a couple of days. And then I would say, I still did it a fair amount, more than I should have done probably, but it was more like I would do that every other week or every every second column or third column. And the rest of the time, you would be doing Obama stuff or Hillary stuff or kind of... So you were, I I was always on the go. So there was no shortage of colour. And and it was an interesting kind of tilt in my time in America that I would say for the first four or five years that I was there, I was doing what foreign correspondents have done for years, mostly, which is translating America for a British audience. But with the internet and with the growth in American readers... Towards the end of my time, and I was there for 12 years, I would say the second half of my time, you were writing as much for a domestic audience as a UK audience. So that, yeah, so that was my, that was my, that became my method. And to be honest, when I came back to Britain, I I didn't do a column for about the first two years. But once again, for family reasons, if you have a column, there's a known space where you have to write every week. And you can organise your week around it. Uh, and uh, I had another kid by then. And so, uh, but there was a lot less travelling by that stage. A lot less travelling and a bit more 
pontificating, which is not exactly what I wanted to do, but what I could do. A message from our sponsor, Vitsu, Melvin's story. We love, love, love our Vitsu shelving. Build quality and ease of assembly is amazing, but it was your service that made the whole process such a joy. So said Melvin from Sydney in this heartfelt message to his Vitsu planner, Sophie, in London. Love is a word heard a lot at Vitsu. Other verbs just don't seem to cut it. As with any customer, Sophie considered every detail, so Melvin's bookshelves were perfect for his needs. Passionate about good service, she communicates with all her customers directly, wherever they are in the world. Whether in person or on the other side of the globe, Vitsu's planners hold your hand throughout the process, time and again proving that long-distance relationships really do work. Every interaction is handled with love from Vitsu. Vitsu's 606 Universal Shelving System is a modular, adaptable kit of parts. It can provide the perfect home for your books and even the desk from which to write one. Visit vitsu.com, that's V-I-T-S-O-E dot com, or request a free brochure via email at vitsu.com by quoting ATN 606. Vitsu, makers of long-living furniture by Dieter Rams. talk about one of the articles that you sent over to us um she would not be moved um and how you came to report that piece i was really interested to see uh that you said that claudette colvin's story was out there but no one had bothered to interview her before how did you go about getting that access um yeah she so um, claudette colvin was um ejected from the bus in montgomery before rosa parks and she was gonna be the one and then she got pregnant and she kind of fell out of the history books more. Well, she didn't fall out of the history books, but she fall out, fell out of the limelight. And she became like this asterisk, really. And I guess, and this speaks a little bit to the previous question, because this wasn't so much an MO for column writing, but for general reporting. My feeling was that you, you really want to be where other people aren't, not just so that you can show off, but because um, if everybody's in Grant Park on election night, then there's really not... What are you adding by being in Grant Park in Chicago on election night when Obama's won? Like, obviously, it's lovely to see and all of that, but you could actually watch it on the telly probably more effectively. And so I would much rather be in a bar on the south side of Chicago with African-Americans kind of just trying to see how they are kind of consuming it and that has generally been my if there's a method that's generally been it or an mo anyway it's like well where are they all going okay well I'll, I'll kind of go over there and not for no reason it should be a reason but the um the 2016 election i spent in uh, middletown in muncie indiana uh 2008 i was in um roanoke virginia just kind of not places where other people were and i like to go to those places and then stay for a while so coming back to Claudette Colvin, I'm always interested in the asterisks. And we're like, well, what happened to her? And that was when I was doing my first book, I would go down, I went down to Montgomery and I would ask people, so what happened to her? And people were like, oh, yeah, yeah I don't know. Yeah, well, that's an interesting question. And one woman had a number 
and um, was actually kind of quite vivid about it. And she gave me this number and I called it when I got back. And I went backwards and forwards with, I think it was Claudette's cousin, for about a year. And I'd gone back to England by then. And then finally I kind of, I think I got her address and I wrote her a letter. And she wrote me back. And um, to be honest, with uh, there's an awful lot of stories around race. Actually, it's not just around race, but race is, a, is actually provides quite a good example that are hanging around waiting for someone to write that are kind of that people don't see the value in for whatever reason and that you can kind of pick up and run with and this was one and I I didn't discover Claudette but I don't remember there being any other big pieces about her before mine there might have been I might even have read them and forgot chance but kind of there, there might not have been and if there were there weren't many yeah, that was just kind of sheer bloody-minded persistence, really, uh, that I really, really wanted to know who this person was. There's no decent history book that that would leave her out, but there was also no history book that would spend any time on her. And the ones that spent any time at all on her got most of it wrong. Yeah, so I was kind of... It's the kind of thing I'm sort of... I feel kind of driven and kind of compelled to do, really. Can you tell us a bit about the rest of your book writing in terms of, you know, it's been a pretty prolific element of your life for you. How have, how have those projects come about and how have you fitted them together with your newspaper commitments? Well, some of them have been organic. That one was organic. I'd been to the South. I'd, I'd discovered this latent interest in the South and then kind of, you know, and then was this idea of, well, being black in America, and I thought, well, this would be a way to do it. The second one, um, so they're all a bit different. The second one, originally I'd wanted to do a story about travelling through Europe, and I've been trying to find a way to do it. I studied French and Russian, uh, university, I spoke German. Europe had always been of interest to me. Um, I was trying to find, like, a kind of maybe to emulate a grand tour or something like that. And I just couldn't come up with the thing that would work. And in the process of talking about it with uh, Mary Mount and Penguin, she said, well, it's identity that you're really interested in. Why don't you write a book about that? Which I thought would be much easier, but actually it was really, really hard. That that was, yeah, that was kind of, that was like passing a huge stone right now because it was hard. And then um, the next sort of proper book uh, about Martin Luther King's speech was I'd interviewed the guy who wrote his speech twice and it came to me one day when I was cycling up the Lake Lakeshore Drive in Chicago that actually this could be a book, this would, this would be a good thing to do. Bad timing because my wife was about six months pregnant at the time, but kind of um I managed to kind of make it work with my commitments and then my most recent book about all the kids who got shot dead in one day I came from a magazine article of the same theme and when I was doing it I thought this could be a book but I need the time to be able to do it 
I mean, gun stories are never very far away in America. And um, my uh, American agent, Francis Cody, called me after guns were an issue and said, would you, or actually Johnny Geller called me and said, Francis has been on the phone. She wants to know if you've got a gun book in you. And I just said, well, there's this. And it's a, I mean, it's a two-line idea, which are kind of quite often the best ideas, really. And, um, and they both got it immediately. And um, that was how that one came up. And the, the thing of weighing it with my other commitments, in 2007, when my son was born, there was a realisation, I'm not going to be able to carry on doing this in the same way. And I came back to England and I said to Alan, I want to, Alan Rusbridge was the editor then, I think I'm going to need to go because I've been in America for four years, so you're probably going to bring me back anyway, but my wife's American, so I'm probably not going to come. And I've got a kid, so I can't do the running about stuff that I did before. So why don't we... And and I want to teach, I want to write books, I want to do other things. And he said... And my idea was, after the next election, 2008, didn't know Obama was going to like do that then, but like after the next election you know, why don't we manage my departure rather than getting a call from you just when I'm about to board a plane to go on holiday saying you've got to come back in six months. And he said, well, or you could just do your column every two weeks, teach if you want to teach, write books if you want to write books, and just be on the other end of the line, which I could not say no to. That was a very generous offer, and that's how all of the other books happened beyond the first one. The first one I got six months unpaid leave for, but all the other books happened because of that. Was that kind of long days then, or could you fit sort of, I mean, how much time were you spending on each kind of project? Yeah, I mean, it changed. So with the first book, no kids, partner working, my um, then girlfriend's working at Washington Post. She'd go to work. I would sit down and, you know, write about 2,000 words a day about my already structured travel, you know, with notes and all the rest of it. And basically kind of got it done within four months. Seven, if you count the travelling. The second book, A Baby Arrived in the Middle, and really just threw me off, actually. And I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to do it, so it was kind of about a year and a half late. And... Um, it's probably one of the reasons why it was so hard. By the fourth one, I'd figured out, I'd figured something out, which was, it's very, very rare that you're going to have the time to sit down and just write 2,000 words uninterrupted. So, um, look at your diary, figure out where the times are, and, and gun it when you have the time. And the rest of the time... So with the book on um, uh, Another Day in the Death of America, my daughter had just been born. She was, yeah, a few months old. And so I would print a picture of a kid every day and I'd think, I know I'm going to have to describe their face. So I'd print a picture each day. And each day that I was full-time parenting, I would just describe a face. That was it. And that way, I was always, so long as you're always working, 
So long as it then then you don't feel like oh fuck I've got to get back to that book. What was I doing? What was I? You're still very much kind of um, engaged. Most of them have involved. Um, the speech was the only one that didn't because the speech, all the reporting and the reading had kind of already been done. Um, the others all involved bouts of travel, two days, three days, sometimes four going to look for people, going to find people, particularly for the last book. Um, uh, yeah, finding, you know, reporting. And then writing kind of, kind of catch as catch can. But I've, I think if I was writing another book now, it would be different again. One of my kids is 14, the other one is eight. My life is a lot more regular now. So, but it was all about kind of fitting it around kids, really. Parenting. In terms of race being this consistent theme that you've you've interrogated in your writing, have you ever felt a, a kind of temptation to strike out and do anything completely different, or any risk of being you know pigeonholed as as that? Um, and I suppose the other like thing that I thought was very interesting, one of the pieces that you sent over was this line that you said, "Whenever I've written about police killings, at least one reader reminds me that black people are most likely to be killed by black people." This is both true and irrelevant. So I suppose just your your feelings about having developed a career in this area, and you know what the response is like that that kind of whole whole piece. Yeah, I mean, um, I guess the thing is, I, I I feel like I do kind of write about uh, lots of other things. I write about uh, left wing politics, uh, imperialism. I've spent best part of a couple of years writing about the Iraq War, American politics. It's and a couple of times I did the I did an inventory because people I know I'm, I'm not saying that you're saying this but people say why do you write about race all the time and it usually kind of panned out to be about fifteen or twenty percent of the time actually um, and and that was the most generous kind of um, interpretation because an awful lot of, like. Nobody says if you're writing about Boris Johnson, why are you writing about white people? If you're writing about the Tory party, why are you writing about white people? So kind of, you know, there's an awful lot of times when you're writing about, I don't know, Obama or whatever, when you're not actually writing about race, you're just writing about the president. Or um, So and my, my feeling was always that um, race is a thing that I'm interested in and it is a legitimate area of scholarship and concern and so I will pursue that and race is not the only thing I'm interested in and interestingly my fight was always to be able to write about race among other things that there were people who would say don't do that because you'll be pigeonholed and there were people who would say you can only do that so my first column was actually about Bosnia but it was spiked because so we don't really need you for that. We need you for the black stuff. And so um, uh, the struggle was to actually be able to kind of write about what was of interest to me. And my sort of, I have about two pieces of grandfatherly advice to young journalists. And one to young black journalists is do what you love. If you love sport, write about sport. If you love fashion, write about fashion. You don't have to write about the politics of race or... And, but if you do want to write about that, write about that. Write about whatever you 
love that you can get paid for because that will be the best stuff that you write. And you'll still be black. Your perspective will come through. You don't have to announce it with every piece. Basically, you don't have to kind of do what I've done, which is kind of has been to be kind of unapologetically insistent on writing about kind of racial issues. Um, But but you do have to do what you want to do. (laughs) And people will, as they have with me, constantly try to blow me off what I wanted to do because they there was an imagination that kind of maybe this either wasn't good for me or just wasn't good. And um, uh, I interviewed Chris Ophelia and I talked to him about about that. And he said, well, you know, pigeons can fly, you know, about being pigeonholed. And I, yeah, I think kind of, um, I respect the question. I do, because it's, I mean, it's a, a, um, it's a reasonable question. It's also true that kind of, White journalists would never get asked the question about why they always write about white people. They just wouldn't be, and um, uh, and I get and you know I I get how I get how that is and why that is, um, and I kind of um, yeah I feel that it's a legitimate area of inquiry, and it would be a real problem if I was writing the same thing over and over and over again. But you know, I just interviewed Lewis Hamilton. It was really interesting and. I brought a lot of my knowledge to that. That was kind of quite a different interview and different skill set to when I interviewed Mia Motley, who's the Prime Minister of Barbados, and different again to kind of Maya Angelou. And so um, it's Tony Morrison who said, like, it's not a limiting place to come from, um, which doesn't mean that you might, might not write about it in a limiting kind of way, but... Um, uh, but that's true of everything. And so I guess, and this is a kind of, I mean, it's a question because it, it it raises some really interesting philosophical challenges, right, for me, which is about my, which is, um, it doesn't challenge them, but it raises the challenges, which is um, of freedom, the freedom to be uh, who you want to be and not to be defined by other people's expectations and to shape your own voice and interest because people will, even the term um, or the terminology, you you know, you could be pigeonholed, you might be pigeonholed uh, or you might be um, uh, typecast if you're an actor. They're all in the passive voice. It's all about somebody doing something to you as opposed to you actually asserting yourself on the world and um and so yeah it has to to it it, that has been a challenge and it and i i honestly i'm grateful for the challenge because it has forced me to reckon with what i do and why you know and um it's been i've been in journalism now for 26 years and when I, when I started with my column, but certainly when I started, like at the Guardian, there were so few black voices that there wasn't actually a way of not being defined one way or another. Just to step into the room was to be framed in some way because you were. Uh, was it that Shonda Rhimes talks about first only and different? I mean, not quite the first, but. 
you know what I mean. So, um, yeah, it raises it raises really interesting and important points about kind of the degree to which we can be free as writers to pursue our interests and to kind of challenge expectations that, I mean, to be honest, it's been worse for me in television. Not that I kind of, I don't like doing television very much uh, and I don't do it very often, but that there's something kind of quite often that's quite crude and crash bang wallop about television. And so people would kind of come up to you and go, so what are you interested in? And I'd say, Ireland, socialism, um, how about guns or gun crime? And I'd say, no, not really. No. Really? What about jungle? And um, you could see that they had this kind of really, uh, yeah, they had this fucking list. And um, that um, if you were going to venture off this list and say, well, actually, I'm really interested in neoliberal globalization and how it's shaping the world, it'd be like, well, we don't fucking need you for that. My experience is that that hasn't actually gone away. You know, I'm 52 now. Uh, I think uh, having written a range of books, all of which kind of do deal with race, but deal with lots of other things as well, um, I still um, am, you know, I'm still met with often a very sort of limited purview of what I might do. Well, that was my next question, really, was as you've moved away from The Guardian into academia and you look back over your sort of career thus far, whether things have improved or whether they've sort of remained at an impasse. They've definitely improved. No no doubt, just in sheer numbers, they've improved. And um, um, and they've improved in the way, you know, in the way that things on the outside have improved and not improved, you know. It's not a linear progression. Not everywhere's improved in the same way. You know. So, yeah, I think I think things have improved in in the media and in um and in publishing obviously there's still a long way to go but also an awful lot of those improvements the the improvements aren't even and they're not secure so um you know there's no saying next do you know what I mean what quite what happens next and of course those aren't the only things that are changing right so kind of we also have this proliferation thanks to new technology, which removes the barriers, but kind of um, diversifies and kind of dilutes the audience. Um, so um, it's, it's a very, very different scene. On balance, I would say that things have improved and they're nowhere near where they would need to be for anyone to be comfortable. We're coming up against our time limit, but just one final question from me. We ask everyone on the podcast about money and how it's interfaced with their writing lives. Now, be as candid or as guarded as you, you'd like to be, but for your time, you know, both when you were kind of full on at The Guardian and then when you've been doing other things, how have you, how have you made it work and how have the, the different elements of your work, your portfolio kind of worked together with your, with your income? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I... There's a reason why I stayed at The Guardian for 26 years and then moved into academia, right? There are some people... I would look at people who are freelancing 
and I'm scared for them. I'm, um, I... My mum, when we were going to university, if there had been... She didn't go to university, but she was a teacher, so she'd, um, you know, she had a teaching certificate. If there had been a degree in plumbing, she'd have said, do that, you get a good job doing plumbing. Like, there's a reason why I was trained to be an interpreter, why my brother, who ended up running the Travel Channel in America, why he studied mining geology, it was about security and jobs. And if you don't grow up with much money, one response to that is to want stability. And so um, The Guardian, moving from The Guardian to... Uh, uh, Manchester was about kind of always having a paycheck even before I had kids uh, about always having a paycheck and then <laughs> that's combined with another thing which is always wanting to be able to tell your boss to go fuck themselves which means that which is about having a sense of financial security and uh, and that or being able to walk away from your security, actually. And so I guess money was never not important. It's always been it's always been important. And it's never driven me. It's never been the primary um I genuinely don't have much of an interest in getting rich. I wouldn't mind being rich. I wouldn't mind getting rich, but I'm not very interested in the kind of process of doing that. And I would much rather be interested and engaged. But I need to know that there'll be a shirt on my back and a roof on my head and food in my stomach for as long as I can see. I'm just, I'm deeply, (laughs) it's one way in which I'm deeply conservative. And... The other thing for me is kind of trying to draw a clear red line between, because I'm still politically engaged, there are things that I don't want money for and that I want to do because they're important to me and because I think they're important for the world and it's a way of being a free person. Uh, And then there are things that I really do want money for. It's like, that's my time. That's time away from my kids. That's time away. And so making that distinction between what is important for me, either politically or for community engagement or whatever it is, I'd say 80% of the time it's obvious. It's about 20% of the time when it's not. I guess the last sort of question, um, what what next? More books? I mean, I know you're still doing some journalism alongside your teaching, but is there anything in particular that you'd like to take on as a project that now you've got a bit more breathing space to do it um you'd like to yeah well um yeah to almost uh well not not exactly contradict but to build on the question that simon uh uh asked before um so i didn't fully answer your question about manchester and and my move to manchester was about was Partly a, a decision I made when Alan said that thing in 2007, just give us your column. And, and I thought, and this is just the way I think, I thought, yeah, I could die here. This is a, this would be a nice place to die at The Guardian. This would, um, um, and that was a way of liberating me from trying to leave. And then, 
for reasons that aren't necessarily kind of interesting or pertinent, I'd, I'd, I'd had enough there. And I was like, I really don't want to die here, actually. I want to die somewhere else. And, um, and I also don't want to die like this. Meaning, I wanted to do longer pieces that could say a bit more and that I could take more time on. Uh, which is what I'm trying to do. So if you look at my output now, as opposed to kind of one piece a week or one piece every two weeks, it's more like kind of once every six weeks or eight weeks. And it's usually about 4,000 words or 3,500 words. And it's not that I feel I deserve that, but that's what I want to do. And if I can if if I can find places to do that, then great. The thing that I'm next... That I'm I'm interested in doing research on is Black Europe. Uh, the Black presence in Europe since the Second World War. And um, that's something that I've been interested in for a while. And, you know, going back to that conversation with Mary Mount, where she said, well, maybe this, this is about identity. But actually, I've always, like I said, I studied French and Russian and... Um, and I kind of got the... So it had been percolating for a long while. And I kind of got the idea of reading Tony Jutt's uh, post-war Europe and thinking, I wonder what this what it would be like to do this kind of panoramic thing about black Europe. What would... Where? And so then started looking and noodling. And then you find all these fantastic Claudette Colvin-type stories that are just out on the street. Uh, and then Afropean came out by Johnny Pitts, uh, which I thought was great uh, and made me want to do it more. Um, uh, it wouldn't, you know, wouldn't be the same thing at all. Uh, and so I'm, I'm working on and working out that at the moment, what that would be exactly, how I would do that. Brilliant. Well, look, Gary, thank you for being such a fantastic guest and always take notes and wishing you all the best with your projects going forward. That was the Always Take Notes interview with Gary Young. He's on Twitter at Gary Young. He has a website and his latest book published in 2016, Another Day in the Death of America, was published by Guardian Faber. We wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches. Thanks to our latest donor, Chelsea Long. If you pledge $10 a month, you get a free two-month trial to Otter worth $26 alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material. You also get access to a series of mini-episodes from previous guests on the show, in which they answer three revealing questions. The latest episode features Val McDermott, and here's a snippet. The one piece of advice I wish I'd had at the beginning of my career was to edit, edit all the time, edit as you go along, edit at every point. Rewriting is where the magic happens. Uh, I used to be a journalist and my plan was always to get it done. 
Hello, it's us again. Simon, what was your main takeaway from the interview with Gary? I enjoyed talking to Gary a lot, actually, particularly hearing about his way into journalism um, in at The Guardian in, in the 1990s and how he sort of made his way there, built a really big profile for himself and then made this conscious decision to move out and away from The Guardian, which I think is a pretty rare thing to do. Um, clearly someone who, you know, who wanted to be reinventing himself and moving on to doing new and different things. Rachel, what about you? Yeah, likewise, really enjoy talking to Gary. I particularly liked hearing about how he finds sort of lesser covered subjects, um, both in history and, you know, reporting on an election from a bar rather than on those sort of main election events. Um, sort of an obvious an obvious thing to do in some ways and at the same time not practised by that many journalists. So um, I think it's reaped you know, real dividends for his work. What have you been up to? Um, what have I been up to? I have been um, hanging out in hospitals more um, for this 1843 story about... Do you have more blood splattered notebooks? Uh, I didn't get splattered, but there was definitely, there definitely was quite a lot of blood. Um, but it's been fine. I mean, it's been, it's been really fascinating, actually. Uh, so yeah, I was in, I was in last week. I'm not this week because the people I'm writing about are away for half term, but I'll be, I'll be back in next. Um, so I'm also, I'm working on something for the LRB actually this week. So a little bit different. Um, what about you, Rachel? I'm uh, covering for a colleague this week, so juggling a few balls. Um, but yeah, nothing, nothing major to report since since our last interview. Um, and we should say also that uh, Rachel has some exciting personal news in that she has got engaged. So many congratulations to her and to her fiance James. Thanks very much. Yeah, if I was the heroine of a Jane Austen novel, my story would end now, but <laughs> sadly not. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikum. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our graphic design is by James Edgar, and our score is by Jess Danheiser. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes, on Twitter at Take Notes Always. If you'd like to support us on our crowdfunding page on Patreon, please do. We're under Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us on our website, that would be great too. Many thanks. Goodbye.